Well, as Richard said, we close out the month of July with our summer series and so grateful for each of our elders who challenged us in all the various ways. But as we enter into August, it's uh, returning back now to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we will be in Matthew 8, verse 23 through 27. March 18th, 1990, at about 1.20 a.m. in the morning, two men drove up to the side door of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. They rang the buzzer which connected them to one of the two security guards inside the museum. They presented themselves, their badges and their uniforms, claiming to be police officers responding to a disturbance call. And so the security guard let them in. What happened over the next hour and a half is the biggest art heist in the history of the world. As these fake police officers handcuffed the two security guards inside and proceeded to steal 13 pieces of art from inside the museum, cutting the canvases from their frames. The museum had been underfunded for a number of years. Its founder, Isabella Stewart Gardner, had set it up so that it could never be rearranged according to the trust that governed it and could never be added to or subtracted from. And because of that, the museum saw sparse attendance over time, was unable to raise the proper funds or even attract new visitors with new displays, underfunded and... uh, Uh, overwhelmed by the aging building, they couldn't invest in state-of-the-art security. And so it was a sitting duck, really. The FBI valued the theft that night at over $600 million in those 13 pieces. Now, 30 years later, the case is still unsolved. The pieces are still missing. No arrests have ever been made. The chief culprit is the Boston Mafia, but they've never been able to penetrate or pin it on anyone. Art historians and investigators were always puzzled by the 13 pieces because there were a number that were in the museum which were considered to be more priceless and more rare, and yet they were untouched. Thirteen curious pieces were taken. The most famous and the most expensive by far was Rembrandt's painting known as the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. The painting, which was Rembrandt's only seascape, depicts the biblical story of Jesus calming the storm on the sea. And in his typical dramatic and realistic style, Rembrandt shows the disciples of Christ struggling frantically against a violent storm, trying to regain control of their ship while huge waves almost up in the ship beating upon the bow of the ship and the sails beginning to rip. One of the disciples is seen actually vomiting over the side of the boat and another fisherman looking directly at the viewer of the painting is Rembrandt himself. He frequently painted himself into his, into his scenes. 
In the midst of all of the turmoil, Christ is depicted calmly sleeping, or calmly, I should say, in the back of the ship. Like so many of Rembrandt's paintings, it is a masterpiece because of primarily its realistic picture of humanity, more so than its historical reality. Rembrandt never left his home country of Netherlands his entire life, and yet he painted a number of biblical scenes, having never visited Israel, certainly having never visited the Sea of Galilee. He had no idea what the sea looked like or even what the boats looked like that were on the sea. And so what he painted, while it was incredibly beautiful, was not actually accurate. Well, today we have come to the story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 8, 23 through 27. We have an opportunity to get a much better, much clearer picture of what took place on that day 2,000 years ago when the disciples uh, embarked on a journey across the Sea of Galilee, not knowing what awaited them in the middle of their trip. And we have an opportunity to take in the beauty, not of a visual piece of art, but of the character and the majesty of the one who ultimately calmed the sea that night. Before we get into any of the details, though, let me begin just by reading these few verses for us, beginning in verse 23. We see that when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Straightforward in the details here, the story of the storm, but it really revolves around two penetrating questions. In verse 26, the disciples are queried by Jesus, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And in verse 27, the disciples ask themselves, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Two penetrating questions that remind us of our need to trust Christ's power and his care over us even when we're faced with overwhelming difficulties and two penetrating questions that force us to the same spot of asking who exactly is this man who's asking us to put our trust in him. Now we can look at these really in two phases of the story. First of all, in the first uh, uh uh, a few verses, 23 through 26, we see a display, or, or excuse me, a plea that displays a deficient faith. Matthew begins the story by simply telling us that the disciples and Jesus got into this boat. It's actually a continuation uh, from verse 5 when we realize he had entered into Capernaum at the beginning of this 
uh, season. He had entered into Capernaum and he had been ministering there throughout the day and maybe the days leading up to that. And in verse 18, when after a long and exhausting day of ministry, we read that he gave orders to go to the other side. Even before he could get into the boats, he was still being pursued by the crowds and a couple of would-be disciples who were trying to follow him and yet full of excuses and Jesus has to uh, deal with them. But he commanded his disciples to get these boats ready to go across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. And down in verse 28, we realize they were headed to the country of the Gadarenes, some six miles of distance they had to travel across the sea. But of course, because of the storm, they probably didn't travel in a straight line. They would have been blown uh, continually off course, such that a journey that might have taken the two, two and a half hours ended up taking them much of the night. In fact, Mark tells us that there were several boats. It wasn't just one. It was a number of boats in a kind of flotilla, no doubt carrying not just the disciples, but Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 8 in this story that there were a number of people who followed along with Jesus, including many prominent women who were traveling with him, including Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the steward of Herod, and a number of other ladies who were not only traveling with him, but Several of them were wealthy and provided financial support for him. There were also, I'm sure, even the wives of some of the disciples. The other side of the lake where they were going was largely undeveloped. It was considered Gentile territory known as the Decapolis. Jews generally avoided this side, but this was specifically why Christ wanted to go there. He was trying to get away from the crowds. He'll do this a number of times throughout his ministry. He'll go to the other side of the lake, to Gentile territory. At one point, he even eventually ventures all the way up uh, beyond the northern borders of Israel into Caesarea Philippi, in order to get away not only from the crowds, but from the increasing hostility of his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were growing weary of him and beginning to attack uh, his teaching, his doctrine, his character, his claims. So here he is, after a very demanding day of ministry, a very demanding season of ministry, where there had been enormous crowds who gave him no rest, people who had uh, uh, intruded on him in every way, who were demanding uh, his, his time for healing. He had begun uh, that day by teaching in the synagogue. When he finished the synagogue, had gone to Peter's house. People were crowded around the door of the house well into the evening, we're told. And along the way, Jesus was, of course, teaching them as well. But we're told that even while he was teaching them, they did not understand what he was saying. Mark explicitly tells us that right before this event, he even taught them the parable of the soils and no one understood what he was saying. Even his disciples didn't seem to catch what he was saying. And so there would have been, I'm sure, a weariness, not only in body, but also in spirit to pour yourself out 
to give so much of your time and effort and evidence through your healing ministry to preach and to teach with all of your being and then at the end of the day to realize that most people don't even know what you're saying. His voice was tired. His body was tired. He was exhausted. So tired that as soon as he got into the boat, we're told in verse 24, he went to sleep. And it was no light nap like you may take this afternoon. This was a heavy sleep, a deep sleep, so much so that he's not even disturbed when they're encountering a storm within an hour on the sea. He lays down in one of these boats, which were probably no more than 27 feet long, eight feet wide, roughly 200 square feet at the largest. Researchers actually found one of these boats in 1986 buried in the mud on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and dug it out and preserved it to be seen. They held these boats typically for crew members, fishermen who would have taken them onto the sea day after day, filling them with uh, nets and eventually fish that were brought. But they could hold, in some cases, up to 12, maybe 14 people. And with Christ laying in the bow of the boat, they probably, this uh, boat was probably not completely full, but would have I would imagine have uh, at least 10 people in it and the other boats carrying the other uh, uh, friends and colleagues of Christ. But by the time everyone and everything was in the boat and set off, the gunnels of the boat, that is the side of the boat, would have sunk down to be about one foot above the water. Even when the boats were filled with their crew, they they... Uh, operated at about two and a half feet above the water. Now fully loaded with uh, all of these people, the boat was weighed down to just over a foot maybe above the water line. And they set off. Mark tells us it was in the evening, perhaps um, after dark, maybe 7, 7.30, And because of all of the added weight and eventually because of all of the wind, the boat sitting deep in the water would have moved sluggishly because of the increased drag. And so, as I said, what would have normally been a two or three hour trip probably turned into a five or six hour trip. Now, these disciples, they were fishermen, many of them, experienced on this lake, experienced with these boats. They had spent their whole life on these waters. They knew the lake. They knew the weather. In fact, you remember Jesus commended the crowds who lived along uh, the the Sea of Galilee because of their knowledge of the weather. He tells them in Luke 12, 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not interpret the present time, he says. So they would have recognized very clearly these weather patterns. 
Uh, Storms always arose over the Mediterranean in the west, and they would have seen the clouds coming clearly and could have avoided it if they saw that evidence. Later on in Matthew 16, Jesus reprimands the Pharisees and Sadducees because they had the keen ability to discern the weather. He says, when in evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, he says. So the sky red in the evening represented uh, from... A meteorological standpoint, it represented that there were no upward currents keeping all of the dust from the ground close to the level of the ground and causing the sun to refract its rays in a way that created a red hue. But in the morning, they expected the warm air coming off of the Sea of Galilee to push upward so that the sky would not be red. It would push all of that dust and dirt up into the sky, and the sky would uh, not reflect that same kind of hue. And if that wasn't happening, it usually indicated that there was a cold front coming, pushing the air downward. So these guys knew the weather. They may not be able to understand all of the... uh, stuff going on in the atmosphere, but they could tell by the colors and the clouds and everything that was going on, they knew how to read its patterns very well. And Jesus knew that. They knew that. Everyone knew that. So we can assume that when they set out on the boat that evening, there was no fear of a storm. There was no idea that they would somehow get caught in the middle of all this. If they did, they would have never set out or maybe even returned to the shore shortly after leaving. But the language here implies that they were caught off guard. Suddenly, behold, out of nowhere, a fierce windstorm sweeping down onto the sea. And they found themselves caught headed directly into these winds. Now this happened because the Sea of Galilee sits about 600 feet below sea level. It sits down in the Great Rift Valley, which runs all the way from the Dead Sea all the way down into Africa, but sits down below sea level And rising above it on the eastern side were a series of mountains. We refer to them today as the Golan Heights. And even at the very top of that range of mountains, there was Mount Hermon, which stands 9,200 feet above sea level. And so there is a massive drop-off in a very short period of time. And when northerly winds were blowing over those mountains, cold Heavy air would come rushing down, plummeting down through the various cracks and crevices and rifts in the sides of the mountains like channels of water crashing onto the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And as the cold, heavy air slammed to the surface of the lake at the bottom of this rift valley, it would churn and swirl and stir the lake violently. This 
it would seem to be one of those storms. In fact, Matthew uses the word seismus. This was a, a, a great storm, a seismus. That's the word from which we get seismic activity. Luke says, a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped. None of the Gospels mention rain or lightning or thunder or any of the things that we might normally associate with a fierce storm. This is a windstorm. It's the kind of windstorm that came suddenly and out of nowhere. As a matter of fact, the sky was most likely very clear. The stars and the moon were still visible. There was no rain, there was no lightning, but there was fierce wind. And it produced waves, not necessarily massive 8 or 10 foot waves like you'd see on Rembrandt's uh, uh, painting. The Sea of Galilee was hardly big enough to produce those kinds of waves. They probably weren't even 4 foot waves because the sea was so narrow, it probably produced no more than two or three foot waves. But you have to understand, when you're in a boat weighed down with so many people that sits barely a foot above the water, then a two foot wave can drown you. This is the boat, not tossed here and there like a cork on a sea bobbing to a fro, but just a boat that was beginning to take on water. This explains, by the way, why Christ was sleeping. This wasn't such a violent storm, otherwise it would have woken him up. But he slept through the storm because it wasn't so much a problem with massive waves as much as it was a problem with a sinking boat. They were filling with water. All the Gospels say this. Matthew 8, 24, There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was swamped by the waves. Mark four thirty seven. A great windstorm arose so the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was already filling. Luke eight twenty three. A windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. The issue for these fishermen, for these disciples, wasn't that the boat was going to be uh, overturned, capsized by some massive waves or some gust of wind. The issue was that the water was flowing into the boat. They were no doubt using whatever they could to bail the water out of the boat, and they soon realized that they were not going to be able to do it. They started to panic. And so in verse 24, they wake Christ up. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Luke has them crying out, Master, Master, save us. You can hear the kind of despair or panic in the repeated address, they 
had become convinced that they were about to die. What Matthew and Luke imply with those words, Mark makes explicit. In Mark 4.38, they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They weren't just informing him. They weren't just warning him. They were frantically yelling at him and questioning him. You've been in those spots with anxiety and difficult circumstances beginning to press against you, sometimes in a tight and crowded space when temperatures and tone of voice rise. And here he was sleeping peacefully in the storm at the back of the boat, in no way panicked by the circumstances. And so they begin to question whether Jesus even cared about them. It's remarkable. They had just finished a long day having watched Christ heal hundreds of people, cast out demons with a word. These guys had seen probably more miracles from Christ than anyone else. They had no real reason to doubt his power, but for some reason they began to doubt his care about them. And they were panicking and they interpreted his lack of panic to be a lack of care. So typical for us when we feel the chaos around us. We have no problem believing in God, even proclaiming God's power and majesty when we are in the calm, but when we're in the midst of the storm and the circumstances are raging, you may not have a problem believing God is able to save you, but you might begin to doubt whether he's willing or whether he cares. His lack of panic is evidence enough for you in the midst of your panic that he doesn't care. We think about all the times when the psalmist cried out to the Lord with the same kind of skeptical tone because he felt alone or he felt abandoned. Psalm 10, why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy exalt over me? Psalm 27, verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my prayers. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint. Those prayers sound familiar to you? In the midst of the turmoil, 
The struggle is not to believe that God exists or even that God's able. It is sometimes the biggest challenge to even believe that he's listening, that he cares. James says that when we're in the midst of a trial, we should count it all joy, knowing that God has sent the trial to perfect our faith. And then he tells us if anyone lacks wisdom, that is wisdom to trust God through this, if anyone lacks wisdom, the wisdom to frame your trial in the midst of God's care and sovereignty, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. It makes me wonder if James was in one of those boats that night. Mark tells us that his family came to him right before he launched out across the sea. I wonder if James, his brother, was there. See, the truth is, these disciples were being tossed actually much more violently by their own doubt and lack of faith than they were by anything going on in the ocean or in the sea. But Jesus was there. He was experiencing all the same circumstances, but he wasn't tossed to and fro. He was calm, and he trusted in his heavenly Father. Jesus understood the same thing that James understood, that when you're in that kind of a distress The greatest danger to you is not the trial itself. The greatest danger to you is a defective view of God. The greatest danger is that you begin to think the wrong thoughts about God. That you don't have the full wisdom that you need to benefit and to grow the way God wants you to grow. And that you need to ask for wisdom because you may be struggling with a defective view of God. And so he reminds us to do that. And he even reminds us of who God is. He gives to all generously and without reproach. If you ask him, he's going to give. That's what he does. In fact, later on, James says, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. He was faithful and good to you yesterday. He'll be good to you today. He doesn't change. That's who he is. He's a good God who gives good gifts. And you may need to ask him to help you to see that during this time. And if you do ask him in that way, that's what he wants to teach you. He will give you generously exactly what you're asking for. You may view God as a tyrant, as a bully. You might look at God as, as someone who is out to get you or out to undermine you, but that is a defective view of God. That is not who God is, James says. He gives. He gives generously. There's no discrimination. There's no favoritism. There's no shadow of turning. He simply gives. 
And Jesus had just taught this to the disciples just a, a few days earlier, Matthew seven eleven. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so James says, let the one who asks in the midst of a trial ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded and double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. So he pictures the doubter as the person who is driven and tossed by the wind, totally dictated by all the external factors, full of, of the currents of whatever uh, Uh, direction of the culture or the circumstances are around you blowing in one direction and then the next always up always down up and down no stability no solid foundation none of that you are a basket case one who doubts James says is double minded two sold double sold the word. He's straddling the fence, wanting to be two different people at the same time, trying to play the part of a person who is trusting God, but in his mind, in his heart, day after day, living like God doesn't care. So, you need to ask God, and you need to ask in faith. Which is how Jesus challenges the disciples. They wake him up and he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Mark says it, Why are you afraid, do you have no faith? Luke says it, Where is your faith? I mean, this is everything you studied and everything you've been taught so that you can actually put it into action right where you are in your circumstance. Where's all that faith you've been singing about and and talking about and preaching about and studying about? Where is it? He's not challenging the genuineness of their faith. He's just saying that their current state of mind and their behavior is giving no evidence to the faith. And he went right after the real danger, wasn't the storm. The real danger wouldn't be the persecutions and all the rejection and all the other stuff they'll face throughout the rest of their life. The real danger was that they would face those things with a deficient faith. Which Jesus knew had potential for greater harm than any of the outward circumstances. And so he rebukes them. Uh, Just as he rebukes the storm, he rebukes them. Which brings us to the second phase of this story and and another penetrating question. We see in verse 27 a power that demonstrates a divine nature. Uh, Well, in verse 26, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. Just like that, immediate calm. Mark says perfect calm. You get the impression that the waves turned into this perfect glassy sea in a snap. You could look out on them and you could see the beautiful 
mirror-like perfection of the moon above you. Ordinarily, when a storm passes, waters will churn against one another for quite a while while the gravitational forces regulate them and calm them down. I remember this. I was a lifeguard for five years on the beaches in South Alabama, and I remember when storms would come up, and then they would blow over and pass by, and we would go back out and take our place on the stand. I remember watching the water take sometimes an hour or more to calm down. But this was instantaneous calm. Which is why the disciples marvel. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. That he can stop the winds in a moment and he can flatten the waves with just a word. It's clearly not what they expected. They were waking him up, but they expected something else. Maybe they expected him to grab a container and start bailing water, or maybe they thought he would give them some sort of instruction on how to navigate around the storm or whatever. But what they didn't expect, obviously, was boom, a word, and everything was gone. That's not what they thought he would do for them. Even when they were asking him for help, they were not really expecting much. Maybe a tepid response. Maybe a nudge, a gentle push in the right direction. But they did not expect him to suddenly, powerfully defeat all of their fears and overcome all of their obstacles in just a moment. But he did and it left them marveling, questioning. Worshipping. Mark says they were very much afraid, which causes John MacArthur to quip The only thing more frightening than the storm outside your boat is to have God inside your boat. What sort of man? The Bible answers that question, by the way. Psalm 89. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Awesome above all those around him. The Lord God of hosts. Who is like you, O Lord God? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When the waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65. By awesome deeds... You answer in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring waves, the roaring of the sea, the tumult of the peoples. You ask the question, the Bible answers the question. They had seen Jesus already with lots of miracles over disease, even people who were demon-possessed. 
But they'd never seen anything like this. This was a miracle over nature. By the way, it's not the type of miracle that these pseudo-healers and pseudo-miracle workers today go around doing instantaneously seizing hurricanes and storms. This was unique. This was a different kind of man. He commanded the swelling waves. And only God does that. And they were filled with a sense of awe that this man standing before them in the boat is not just a man. The howling of the winds gave way to the total silence of a glassy lake. And inside the boat, the men who had just been frantically panicking and screaming and yelling were silenced as they quietly asked themselves in their heart, Who is this? He's the man who calms the seas. He's the man who saves. He's the man who, no matter what your circumstances and no matter how much you feel tossed and churned, he can speak and he can save. All you have to do is ask in faith, James says, without doubting. Ask in faith, and He's generous. He will forgive your sins, and He'll give you salvation. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning, and your life has churned, the Lord's brought you here. He brought you here today so that you could hear about Him, so that you could cry out to Him in faith. If the Lord's working in your heart that way today, I encourage you, don't leave here without stopping by maybe our visitor reception at the end of the hall there on the right, stopping by. Share with us how the Lord is at work in your heart. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to hear the glory of the Lord manifest in the salvation He's bringing to your life. Father, we're grateful, so thankful for this reminder so needed in our life. We are those of little faith. It's not because we don't believe in you, O Lord, but our panic, our fears, and our anxieties take hold of us. Forgive us, for questioning your care. Lord, you are a good God, a generous God, a great God, a powerful God, a God who not only is able, but is eager to save us. And today we rest our hearts in you, knowing that not only did you give us your son on the cross to save us, 
but you committed all your love to us and you will bring us to the end. We bless you and thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.